it was this kind of perfect moment in time where I had worked enough to have a bit of knowledge and a bit of money, but I was still young enough to be a little dumb and stupid and willing to kind of gamble it all. And I don't know. I mean, I wonder if I had been in my 30s, if I would have ever done this. I mean, I'd like to think I would have, but I, I'm not entirely certain. While visiting Africa two decades ago, Kelsey Grimm, Dartmouth 96, immediately connected with a set of orphaned lion cubs, dropped everything, and moved to a new continent to ultimately fight for their freedom and welfare. But in her many years in the bush, and now back stateside, she's realized there are trade-offs in balancing caretaking for a few and looking out for the many. Find out how a need for connection and something greater than yourself can be fulfilled in more than one way on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I'm here with my friend, Kelsey Grimm, who has traveled around the girdled earth, and she's back in the United States after having lived the majority of our time post-college in South Africa. So lots of stories to tell about how that came to be and how she's back, but still almost one foot planted in two continents. But we're happy to talk to you today. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks. Hi, Leslie. So I have been starting these interviews quite frequently with the same two questions. When you were in college, who were you? And as you left it, who did you think you would become? Oh, wow. Who was I when I was in college? I was very naive. I had grown up, you know, just following one foot in front of the other, doing the things I thought I was was supposed to do. You get good grades, you become valedictorian, you become valedictorian, you go to an Ivy League school, you go to an Ivy League school, you go into corporate recruiting, which is exactly my path. Um, I went straight into investment banking. I then went into venture capital. I just did things the way I thought I was supposed to do it. So that's who I was. I was a good girl. I was a type A good girl. Thought that I would probably end up in finance. I did prefer VC private equity over investment banking, and I, it was a good you know lifestyle, especially on the West Coast, kind of work hard, play hard. And I thought that I would continue doing that. It was you know a good life. I I knew I would become a mom. I knew that for certain. Um, and I probably I just thought I would work in finance and have good friends and live a good life. And I I to be perfectly honest, I just didn't. I was relatively activist in the sense that I, I felt like I was a strong feminist, but I don't think I thought all that much about the world around me. The environment definitely mattered to me. I was didn't matter to me enough at the time to be an environmental studies major. I, I you know which you would think I would have been. I was a government and French major. I was very, I mean I, I don't know, simple minded, but I, I I just wasn't fully seeing the world around me, in the way that I do today. Certainly not. Yeah. And the work hard, play hard, was that what led you to a moment of, I need a sabbatical when I'm 20 something? <laughs> yes. And I had always had wanderlust in me. I, I, I really wanted to travel. I had done the quarter abroad in France when I was at Dartmouth, but I had never had the chance to take a gap year. And I, and you, you know, for Americans, that's not a big thing doing gap years. Now, if I could go back in time, I would do a gap year before college. I'd do a gap year after college. I really just wanted to travel. And I remember sitting at my little in my little office in private equity and every free moment I had that I wasn't working, I was researching Southeast Asia and India and Africa and where I wanted to go. And it was all that consumed my thoughts at the time. So yes, I, I wanted to go. I just wanted a year, just a year to go and enjoy and travel and then come back to the grind again. That was the plan. The plan was originally just one year out sabbatical. I was going to do three months in Southeast Asia, three months in India, three months in Africa, three months going somewhere that I 
just you know made up along the way. And of course, I never made it past Africa. Right. Unfortunately, you should have done it in the order you just said, Asia. Yeah. Because, I made it three months. <laughs> yeah, because you did start in Africa and tell the little tale. I did actually make it the first three months. I went from Uganda, traveled all the way down to South Africa, did it in different ways, some with groups, some on my own. And then three months later, I met my mom in South Africa and we rented a car. We had no plans. We were just doing South Africa for the last month. We were going to do it safely in the sense that we were going to make sure we didn't drive at night, but otherwise we didn't have any hotels booked or anything. For the most part, we were backpacking. We, it's, a, it's a really great backpacking scene in South Africa. So we had this little book called The Coast to Coast. And we were driving down the coast of South Africa. And my mom's reading this little book. And she's like, oh, my gosh, there's a place where you can play with lion cubs. And being a naive tourist, I was like, oh my God, we, we got to go. And it made no practical sense because we were on our way down the coast. We were going to go pony trekking in Lesotho. But we did. We turned like 15 hours inland to go for 24 hours to this place that you could play with lion cubs. And I went there and I just remember laying in the grass with little baby lion cubs running, rolling like all over me and just being in total bliss and just knowing like I, I, I just want to have this feeling forever. I love this. And so I went to the manager and I said, you know, what do you think about me staying on and helping? And um, he was like, yeah, it sounds great. So I actually did go home for Christmas because it was already December, came back in January and didn't really have a plan of how long I'd stay. I just knew I had to do this. And it still was just as wonderful as before, but about a week into it, you know, I'm starting to ask more questions, you know, so where's their mom? Why am I able to have this contact with them? What's what's the story here? And I ultimately came to learn that this was a canned hunting farm and that these lions were being bred for the hunting industry. And the way it works is essentially the mom gives birth and the handlers go and they chase the mom away, scoop up the newborn babies. I mean, minutes old, take them away. They're used for tourism, bottle feeding for the first few months and then just playing with tourists. And then once they get to about a year, year and a half, they kind of go into enclosures, kind of like a roadside zoo. Um, And then when they're about two and a half or three years old, they get sold and the only buyers are hunters. So I was horrified because I'm already attached to these animals. I'm completely smitten with them. They are like my babies. And, you know, I spoke to the manager about it and he's like, I, I, I don't know what to do because if I stay, I'm supporting this industry. If I leave, I'm leaving the animals I love. And I, you know, again, being a naive American, I thought it's just money. We can do this. You know, we can, we can make this work. So I went back to the States and I thought that people would really, really want, they would hear this story and they'd feel as passionately as I did. No one cared. I mean, they cared. My friends listened to what I had to say, but no one cared from the standpoint of giving financially. So I realized that it was going to take a little more. I I did find one of my senior partners in the Boston office of our firm. I approached him and he actually bought out my entire portfolio. Still to this day, I actually, I need to get in touch with him and let him know that if he had not done that, because I don't know that he fully understands that if he hadn't done that, Incosini wouldn't exist today. And I'm sure, you know, he probably made money out of it. So it was a good thing for him to do, but for me, um, I needed the cash right then, and you didn't get paid out for several years in, in private equity. So, so yes, I, I ended up selling all my stocks, sold my 401k, babysitting money from growing up. I mean, pretty much furniture, clothes, anything I could get my hands on sold. Because in order to get permits for Lions, you had to have a minimum of 7,500 acres. That was the permit requirement. So I needed enough just to put the deposit down on the first piece of land, which 
ultimately was done and Cassini was created. And actually, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, the reserve is a lot bigger. Um, we've acquired all the adjoining properties, bringing them into the conservancy. And actually, today, our focus is not on, on lions. It's on all wildlife. And actually, it's on it's actually even more on land than it is on wildlife. I realized, you know, it was a learning curve for me. I was, again, 26 years old, had never worked in that industry. It was this kind of perfect moment in time where I had worked enough to have a bit of knowledge and a bit of money, but I was still young enough to be a little dumb and stupid and willing to kind of gamble it all. And I don't know. I mean, I wonder if I had been in my 30s, if I would have ever done this. I mean, I'd like to think I would have, but I'm not entirely certain. I just, it was this perfect window of time. And I remember feeling like I didn't have a choice. Of course I was going to do this. You know, how could I possibly leave these animals? They were my heart and soul at that, you know, at that time. Over the last 20 years, as I've grown and developed, I have realized that one, I don't really want to run a sanctuary or a zoo. I don't enjoy the feeling of seeing animals in captivity. What I really wanted was a reserve. And still to this day, we do bring in some orphan and injured animals. We, we do that to some extent, definitely. But the real focus now is on wild lands and with wild lands comes more protection of wildlife. You really can't do anything from a conservation perspective without wild land. Um, it all flows from there. So a couple years I'd say maybe two years into it, I also had the realization of how am I going to continue funding this thing? Because it's, you know, I've, I've put pretty much all of my money into buying the land. And now I'm sitting with this, this massive piece of land and realizing, you know, I'm essentially a farmer, a farmer, very cool animals, but a farmer. And it requires a significant amount of reserve management, felt management, fire regimes, roadworks, I mean, you name it, you know, staffing, local community issues. There's, there's so much that comes into it. So I started a, a working holiday program at Incosini and it was immediately a really great success. There really wasn't much out there like that at the time. Basically, people would come from the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and they would pay us to work for us. They would pay to have an experience deeper than a normal tourist. They covered their food and accommodation, and then they got to work with our rangers and work with our team and see the kind of the inner workings of a reserve and and a sanctuary. And that worked out so well for us that other projects started asking me to organize programs for them. And that's really how Incosini Eco got started. It started off just with my reserve. And then over time, it grew to about 15 projects, which is really the most I can personally handle. That's essentially the fundraising arm of Incosini. And it does fund about 90% of the work that we do. Focusing on wild lands is not just about farming. It is so intertwined in that part of the world with, you know, human wildland interaction and everything else from fire. And actually, some of that is human, sadly, right, to, you know, everything else you have to do. So, like, take me through one or two or three of the people interactions that have been kind of, you know, on not only your annual fretting list, but like your day to day. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. It's tough. You know, you just mentioned the fire and it is, it is human related. Um, it's a real, it's, it is a very tough thing. And I, and I'm empathetic, you know, on all sides, essentially 
there are limited natural resources and we have problems with the local communities because why are the, why are the animals why is the wildlife more important than we are why can't we graze our cattle here and it's a constant battle poaching if someone's going to go poach for bush meat why can't they do that? I mean, it's, it is, it is really tough. And the only thing I can do, because we are going to continue having that battle because it is our responsibility to protect the lands and to protect the wildlife on that land. Um, and that is what I have made my focus, but there are definitely ways of incorporating the community into that. You know, we definitely try to support and have often create, we've created bush schools at a lot of our programs to educate the kids in the local communities so that they can grow up not only to hopefully work for us as conservationists and rangers, but for them to really value the animals as not just see them as food. It's not just that it's important for those families. It is actually important for the entire idea of conservation yeah. and and how tourism can help that and do we need tourism to be a smaller part of the economy? Yes, probably. But also, do we need to recognize that it needs to kind of coexist in a different way for those people to take advantage of it? And, I mean, it's so complex. Everything that you deal with is so complex. So you're back stateside yep. right now, mm -hmm. though you're running all of this full time um, from the States. When you were in Africa, tell me about your education, kind of. In, in what stages did you learn <laughs> different lessons yeah. about how to how to manage this this place, the people around it, yeah. everything? Gosh, there's so many different aspects of that question because you know there's kind of the academic education and then there's the emotional education. I'm going to talk about the emotional side of it first. I I'm a pretty social person, but I'm also okay on my own. I mean, I I can I can be for long periods of time. I got there, I was living very, very deep in the bush. Um, I was the only woman on the reserve. There, there were language barriers. And it was also a time where um, I think it did exist, but we didn't have uh, things like Facebook, social media that I think it, had, it was starting to come into existence, but ways in which you would connect with people, at least for me, I didn't have it at the time. Part of that was the fact that we were completely off the grid, didn't have phone lines, didn't have electricity. We had solar panels to run basic things like commute computers. We had a radio tower that allowed us about a 26K modem. It was a constant struggle to even be online at all. And um, and definitely you couldn't talk on the phone. I didn't, we didn't have phone lines. So I was very, very disconnected. And then, you know, it, the time keeps on passing and you feel like every, I'm sure everybody, a lot of people have gone through this before where it goes so long that you feel like you'd have to write a novel in order to get back in touch with somebody. So truly when I was there, I was very disconnected with pretty much everybody in my life. And I was there for about 12 years in the bush and it was very, very lonely. I mean, I went through stages where I just kind of put my nose to the grindstone and I, you know, it was all about the mission and working as hard as I could. And I could kind of put all of it out of my mind, but if I was ever to sit down and really think about it, it was it was really hard. And I remember I'm not someone who cries easily, and I remember crying a lot <laughs> because I was very lonely. And I loved the work that I did, but I also just want I just wanted to call a girlfriend to go for lunch one time. You know, right. there was that, um, and you know that, and that was part of one of the reason why I ended up coming back to the states. You know, I wanted to have connection with people, and I wanted to have a family. I actually remember. You know, I would come back to the States about once a year, typically for Christmas. But even then, I was in such a decompression mode when I came back. I really never reached out to anybody. It was just home for a week or two and then back again. But I remember one of my girlfriends meeting her and 
we would, we laughed and laughed and laughed, but every story was, oh, remember when we did that? And remember when we did that, there were no present stories. My life had no present. Everything was, remember what we did in 2000 and, and you know, pre 2000. And I, every time those conversations would happen, it would just hurt my heart. Cause I just realized I, mm. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm living this wonderful life with these amazing animals, but I, I miss people. Um, so then from an academic perspective, I mean, gosh, I learned so much just as a very, very, very small example. One of my best girlfriends, Erica, who's a classmate of ours, she was sending me a message yesterday about wanting to build an off the grid camp. And we were texting back and forth. And I was just reminding her that, you know, you know, is off the grid. And as I was texting with her, realizing, oh my God, I know so much about living off the grid. And I, <laughs> you know, I actually kind of forget how, you know, how much I, I, I knew nothing then. My entire life for 20 years was how to pull as much power as possible for for fence lines and for how to get hot water. I mean, I, for the most part, we would stoke a donkey, which is a boiler, and I would have to take a shower that way. But if you were really lucky, you use a propane gas hot water heater. Um, but just everything from inverters and battery banks and solar panels and all the technology behind being off the grid. I was having this, this text dialogue with her and just kind of laughing to myself about, it's just such a part of who I am now. I don't even think of it as an education almost. Doesn't everybody know that? <laughs> but it feels, it, it just, it's, right. it's, such a, it's so ingrained in who I am that, and it's actually one of the things that, that bums me out a little, a little bit because when I first came back from Africa, I didn't take anything for granted. I mean, when I plugged something in, I was like, hallelujah, you know, it was, or when a, right. you know, when a plane went by and I could, the noise just made me cringe. It's just interesting how I've, I'm completely reaccustomed now to the way things are, but it actually is kind of nice to be so used to just simplicity mm -hmm. that you're so grateful when you have anything more, you know? Right. And so one of the things that you're both grateful for and that pulled you back was motherhood. Yes. I knew I wanted to have kids. I was there in Africa from essentially 26 to 38 full time. And my clock was ticking. <laughs> and this was hugely important to me. So I came back to the States and actually immediately froze my eggs. And then when I turned 39, I started trying immediately. And I'm, I, I was doing it as a single mom by choice. So using a sperm donor and my own eggs. And luckily got pregnant on my first embryo transfer with twins. I did lose one of them, but Luke is the other. And then about three years later, tried again. And actually I had 17 eggs left over from my egg freezing. And so I thought, oh, easy peasy. I'll, I'll get easy pregnant easily the second time. And I didn't. And none of, oh. none of those embryos from those eggs worked. And so now I'm in a panic because I'm 43 years old. And my doctors are telling me there's a 4% chance of me getting pregnant on my own. And I said, no, we're going to do this. Let's do some mini IVF cycles. And the first round um, went in, they made, we made it through to retrieval and got zero eggs, <laughs> nothing. My, my body oh. was just cobwebs inside. Second round went in, they got one egg. It made it to day three, but it was a six cell, which if you know anything about IVF is not a good number. <laughs> um, so I didn't even bother to go get tested two weeks later, blood tested. And uh, the doctor had to call me and say, you know, you, you need to come in just, just, just so we can continue on to the next round. So I went in and I was pregnant at 43. Oh <laughs> I know. So I have a two-year-old now. Vivian, who is amazing. And it's, yeah, so I was very lucky. I, the only regret I have is I wish I had started earlier because I would yeah. love to have had four kids. 
more. I would love to have had four more, whatever. <laughs> Lion cubs. I would have loved to have had, <laughs> yes, a whole pride. <laughs> oh, there yes. you go. There you go. Now, what does life look like? How do you run an entire conservation enterprise from Seattle? It's actually not as hard as you would think. You do need to trust the people you have on the ground. And I have 15 projects that I work with, and I am a bit of a micromanager. <laughs> I do require them to send me daily reports, you know, letting me know what's going on, and I will query things here and there. But it's important to me that I'm truly in the know on an absolute daily basis. If it's something more than just the average day, you know, a rhino gets poached, we have some, you know, some arrests from an anti-poaching perspective, anything, anything that kind of is a higher level, then that would be a phone call or a text, something, something a little bit more than even just the daily report so we can handle the situation. But yes, I'm in daily contact. We have a pretty good system in place. It's taken 20 years to get there. There have been years where there maybe haven't, hasn't been as much trust or haven't had the right people on the ground. And I feel like we're actually in a really good place with the people, you know, I have. You have such a rich life now with your family, with Africa. What do you miss about not being there? Gosh, I really, I, I do miss a lot. I hope this doesn't sound terrible, um, but sometimes I just miss being on the ground because I work really hard. I work really, really long hours, often 60 hour weeks when I have two littles. And it's very hard for me to convince myself to take the time away from them when I start to get disconnected from the work. And if I'm not on the ground, I do start to feel a little disconnected. And that actually harms the work because I, no. I need to crank. I need, I need to not feel that pull. The more connected I am to my teams, to the people, to the animals, to the land, to everything, the harder I want to work, the more I want to do. So just the, the sense of connection, I sometimes start to miss. But sometimes that just means, <laughs> this is going to sound a little crazy, but sometimes I actually just go back and watch videos. That is the, wow. That pulls me back in. Um, we had this little monkey who loved to swim. And I remember in the beginning teaching him to swim. And it was like a child. It was like my kids now. Like I would I would sit in, in the pool, with the pool being a disgusting like water a, hole, like a water hole, like a dirt water hole, like <laughs> kind of filthy. And this little monkey would like jump into my arms and then I would push him back to the bridge and he would like swim to the bridge and then jump out and then he'd jump into my arm. We keep doing it over and over again. So, uh, oh my gosh. yeah, so I would watch these videos. You know what? I should say this before we kind of, I, I forget to say it. Um, obviously, <laughs> I want to make sure that everybody knows <laughs> that any facility that allows you to have contact with baby lions or baby tigers or really baby anything allows you to walk with lions or bottle feed or anything in that realm, you know, ride on elephant backs, anything that's that that is like that, that uses the animal in some way, run for the hills. These are not ethical projects. Don't join them. I know it seems fun. Everybody wants to do it. Who does not want to play with the lion cub? But if you just understood the industry behind it, every cent that you put into supporting something like that ultimately helps them get shot. And it's hard to kind of put your, those, that, that little desire aside and do what's in, you know, in, the, in the greater good, but please do. Yeah. There's no end game though to Encasini. So when will you be finished? Gosh, there's so much left to do. And you're right. There is no end game. Um, I set it up as a trust because I want it to always be conservation area. Really, my, my future goals surround 
acquiring more wild land and bringing it in, opening up more corridors for wildlife. Sadly, many people would say that today is the best it will ever be for conservation. It, it was, it's only going to get worse every single day from here on out as, as humans encroach more and more into the wild spaces. And if my role is just to serve as like a stopgap and just be putting my thumb in all those holes, you know, constantly just make, making it a little harder for, for it to happen, then that's my role. But um, th th there's still so much more work to do. I don't feel like, yes, financially, it would help a lot to have more finances. We, we're only able to do as much as we can fund. So. So Kelsey, you kind of alluded to this earlier that maybe you wouldn't have done all of this if it hadn't been in that sweet spot of her extended youth. But knowing the path that you were, quite frankly, lucky enough or young and dumb enough to do, what might you go back and tell the younger, just leaving college, Kelsey, about things she might need to know for her future? If people ask me the question of, would you do it again? My answer is different depending upon when you would have asked me that question. <laughs> there were years that were so hard, so hard, I would have said no. I truly would have said no. And I know that sounds terrible. Um, and I know, I, I, I think that what I've created is unbelievably important and, uh, or I wouldn't be doing it. But there were years that were so hard that I would have said no. And then there were years that I would have said, hell yeah, of course I would do it again. And luckily, I'm in a space right now where I'd say, of course, I would do it again. But I can't forget that there were times that really were just miserable. Um, what made you stick it out in those years? I do think I'm very resilient. <laughs> I do think I'm very stubborn. Damn it, I'm going to do this. I said I was going to do this. Um, and I think, to be perfectly honest, there's probably a little bit of fear of change as well. I, it, was, it, it had become the only life I knew. It was actually one of the reasons why I was even there the 12 years. Originally, I think I thought I was only going to be there for a couple of years. Then as time went on, it just becomes the life you know. I actually remember thinking to myself, how could this even work without me here on the ground? I couldn't even see a way to have a different life. And it actually took a situation forcing my hand that I needed to come back to the States for that allowed me to see, oh yes, there are other ways. You can do this and still have some sense of connection and life and social. And But I, I truly didn't see that for at least, at least 10 of the years. I didn't know that there was any other way. Um, and you asked about, I, I, I think the question was something about what type of message. What would you, yeah, what you would have said to young Kelsey I, one, I'm now a huge proponent of gap years. I really feel like, you know, other countries do this. And I, Americans are so scared about getting off track. God forbid you start, you know, college a year late or you start that corporate recruiting job a year late. You'll almost never get back that time, you know, get back a chance to go and do these types of trips. So do them when you're young and when you have the chance. So I would, I would personally have taken a gap year. I don't know that I would have done it before college. I think I would have done it right after college. That would have been my perfect time. But for some reason, I felt like I had to just get in the rat race. And I wish people didn't feel that. And, uh, and parents are going to have to say that to their kids. They're going to have to say, you know, there's there's time. There's time for you to get to hop back into this. You don't need to, to be there right now. The key is you need to be educated. You need to have some skill set. <laughs> um, and for me, I do feel like I, I feel like I, I actually did need Dartmouth. It taught me to it taught me how to think. 
It taught me how to write, which actually I do. I use a lot in my work, whether it's grant writing or writing to donors or, I mean, writing for permits. or I mean, I, I do a lot of writing in my, in my work and, and Dartmouth is really hammered that into me. And you asked me the story about lessons from Incosini and it sounds so cliche, but failures can be blessings in disguise. At Incosini, I started with an epic failure. What I didn't mention earlier was that we actually never did get permits for the lions, which was the entire purpose of starting Incosini. Yes, I bought the land. I seemingly did everything right. But in the process of fighting against the canned hunting industry and advocating about that, um, I created a lot of enemies. And hunting is big business in Africa. It's like big tobacco or big pharma. And I mean, without going into all the crazy torrid details of car chases and kidnappings and high court cases and death threats, ultimately these enemies did everything they possibly could to block Incosini from getting the permits. And they succeeded and it was totally devastating. It was break my heart devastating. And I really didn't see any way of going on from there. But Incosini shifted and I, I had always actually really been passionate about wild lands and protecting wildlife in the wild where they belonged. And if we had been successful with those initial permits, Incosini would have become a sanctuary, a single species sanctuary, which is wonderful, but it really wasn't what I was truly passionate about from the beginning. So actually failure can be good. <laughs> it required regrouping and shifting, but ultimately what Incosini is today is so much bigger and better than what it would have been with that simple vision in the beginning. And yes, it was devastating at the time. And, you know, 20 years later, I still think about it, but it was the right way forward for us. Yeah. Well, Kelsey, I am so impressed, as is everyone who meets you and hears your story and hears your impact. And I think your story about really finding who you are and who you're meant to be, at least for this big chapter, is going to be inspiring to other people as they're winding down their road. So thank you so much for sharing it. Thanks, Leslie. That was Kelsey Grimm, co-founder of the Encosini Wildlife Reserve and director of philanthropy and the driving force behind the Encosini Echo Experience, which you can find at enkosini.org. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, at roadstakenshow.com and on the next episode of Roads Taken.